You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Vigilantes visit Zoo Park and the lights go out voluntarily on some Georgia hacktivists. Treasure Hunter source code is posted to a criminal forum. Malicious Chrome extensions and malicious Android photo editing apps. Grand Crab ransomware served by compromised legitimate sites. News on Russian influence ops and concerns about a resumption of Iranian hacking. An ex-CIA officer's been charged with espionage. A hobby hacker's been indicted on federal charges. And the FCC hits a robocaller with a record fine. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 11th, 2018. We begin with some notes on hacktivists and vigilantes. To take up the vigilantes first, one such avenging netizen has decided to take on the Zoo Park surveillance group Kaspersky discovered operating in the Middle East. The vigilante has released a good tranche of what he or she discovered sending it on to Motherboard in the expectation of striking a blow against Zoo Park's continuing ability to operate quietly against its victims. The vigilante also tempts fate with a lot of coldly disparaging remarks about the folly of code reuse. Any attacker who would reuse code so freely, the vigilante suggests, is a skid without skills. The other group we might mention is the crew of hacktivists who oppose the U.S. state of Georgia's proposed computer security bill by defacing various sites in the Peach State. The proposed law, State Bill 315, was vetoed Tuesday by Governor Nathan Deal. The hacktivists have said, in effect, mission accomplished, and they will no longer do any more digital strong-arming. It's good they're stopping, but they've set an unfortunate example. The proposed bill was sufficiently ill-conceived that widespread rational argument from the security industry and elsewhere would probably have been all the opposition the governor needed. There's no indication that Governor Deal was moved by fear of the hacktivists. He was probably moved by concerns about criminalizing legitimate white hat work and by the possible difficulty of avoiding widespread unintended consequences should enterprises too vigorously avail themselves of the bill's hackback provisions. As the governor said in the statement accompanying the veto, quote, certain components of the legislation have led to concerns regarding national security implications and other potential ramifications. Consequently, while intending to protect against online breaches and hacks, SB 315 may inadvertently hinder the ability of government and private industries to do so, end quote. 
Researchers at security firm Flashpoint have found that the source code for the Treasure Hunter point-of-sale malware has leaked online. The source code was posted to a Russian-language criminal forum. The family to which Treasure Hunter belongs has been operating in the wild since 2014. Treasure Hunter is installed, Security Week reports, using weak credentials. The crooks get through a Windows-based server to the point-of-sale terminal, where they install Treasure Hunter. They create a registry key to run the malware at startup. From that point, Treasure Hunter scans processes running on the victim's system, identifies paycard data, and reports that data back to its command and control servers. It's not known why the source code was posted, but this is known. When malware source code leaks, one can expect a surge in criminal activity using that code to follow soon. Flashpoint found the leak in March, and since then have been working with Cisco's Talos Group to find ways of disrupting the anticipated surge. Malicious Chrome extensions continue their crypto-jacking success. Radware has found seven malicious extensions in the official Chrome web store. The infection chain began with links pushed by Facebook. These led to a bogus YouTube page that invited installation of the bad extensions. Once infected, the victim machines were subjected to one or more of the following— bot herding, crypto jacking, click fraud, or credential harvesting. Google has expelled the extensions, but the method is likely to be used again. Another official Google store has also had infestations to deal with. Malicious photo editor apps have been found in Google Play. Security firm Sophos has found 25 bad apps that entered the Play Store in March and April. They carry ad fraud malware, Crooks monetize infected devices by getting them to click, as it were, on background ads without the user's knowledge or interaction. The ads have all been reported to Google and should be gone from the walled garden of the Play Store. Researchers at Cisco's Talos unit have found Grand Crab ransomware lurking in a variety of legitimate but compromised websites. Two of the examples Talos gives are, according to ThreatPost, a courier service in India, and a WordPress site for an herbal medicine vendor. What the compromised sites tend to have in common are default credentials and MySQL vulnerabilities. So good digital hygiene is important not only for your enterprise, but for cyber public health as well. Kaspersky has found 17 critical vulnerabilities in the widely used Open Platform Communications Unified Automation Protocol, that's OPCUA, OPCUA is widely used by developers working in the industrial Internet of Things. Release of Russian Facebook ads shows how the troll farms refined their messaging and used it opportunistically to damage the credibility of U.S. institutions during the last presidential election. A former CIA officer has been charged with spying for China. Jerry Chun Shing Li, a former case officer with human intelligence responsibilities, worked for the CIA from 1994 to 2007. According to reports by NBC News and the New York Times, he's thought to have provided Chinese security services with information they used to roll up U.S. covert operations in China. In Los Angeles, an alleged hacker has been indicted for illegally accessing and defacing military, government, and business websites. The alleged hacker, Billy Ribeiro Anderson, who used the handles... Anderson Albuquerque and Alphabeto Virtual is thought to have hacked as a hobby. Should the prosecution have their way with him, we must remember that he's considered innocent until proven guilty, 
Mr. Anderson may need a new hobby to occupy himself during his sabbatical at Club Fed. Researchers show there's a dog whistle for Siri, Alexa, and Google's assistant. A study at the University of California, Berkeley, has shown it's possible to embed commands a human wouldn't notice in songs. When played in the presence of the AIs, the AIs hear them, but you don't. And now we wait for all the objections from audiophiles that, yes, indeed, they can hear sounds only dogs can hear, and that, unlike the rest of you squares, they can easily tell an unobtrusive command from digital noise. So talk amongst yourselves, please. Quietly. Industry experts are almost as a group pointing to Iran, talking about Iranian cyber reprisal for U.S. withdrawal from the nuclear agreement as a done deal. So if you bet on form, bet on Tehran's cyber contractors getting busy in a network near you. And finally, in a good news, bad news story, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission has handed a robocaller with a record fine, $120 million. That's the good news. The bad news is that it's just one robocaller. As FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenworkel said, in the course of a statement applauding the fine, quote, Let's be honest, going after a single bad actor is emptying the ocean with a teaspoon. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, We saw an article come by from HelpNet Security, and it was called Why Cryptography is Much Harder Than Software Engineers Think. 
and I thought this was right up your alley. Uh, first of all, uh, do you agree? Is cryptography much harder than software engineers think? <laughs> well, I don't really know what software engineers think about, but I think it's definitely <laughs> it definitely is very tricky. Right. And, and I think one of the things in particular is that software engineers just aren't used to thinking uh, in general about um, implementing security critical or or cryptographic software. And so shortcuts that you might might take or efficiency improvements that you might apply to general code uh, might actually render a, a security critical algorithm insecure. Oh, can you give us an example? Well, in this article, they were talking about a vulnerability that was discovered about six months ago uh, called Roca. And uh, what that vulnerability was based on is, was the, uh, the generation of, of uh, primes for the RSA algorithm. So some of the listeners may know that the RSA algorithm fundamentally works by uh, having uh, the honest party generate two random primes and then multiplying them together to get a modulus. And the hard problem for an attacker would be taking that modulus and then finding what the original primes were. Mm. And there, there's been a whole sequence of techniques developed and, and recommendations actually issued for how to go about generating those primes because they need to be large, they have to be a certain size, they should be uh, unpredictable, uh, and they, there are other properties they need to satisfy as well. And so there's a whole literature about how to do that securely. And it seems that what happened was that people who were implementing the, the software for generating those primes ended up taking some shortcuts in order to try to make the process more efficient. And those shortcuts uh, led to the software generating primes uh, for which it was then easy for an attacker to uh, factor uh, the resulting modulus. Hmm. So basically by taking these shortcuts and not following the recommended practices, they were making the software insecure. I see. Now, as a professor, the students that you deal with, um, how do you uh, impart these lessons to them? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, so first of all, I always tell students that they need to implement things exactly as specified. They shouldn't be designing their own crypto, and they shouldn't be trying to optimize uh, algorithms that are recommended. And then what I also do is try to illustrate to them throughout the course what can go wrong when they don't follow that advice. So what, what I'll usually do is give examples like, like this one, um, showing them what can go wrong in the real world when people do take shortcuts, when people don't follow the recommendations. And hopefully, you know, after a semester's worth of that, they, they, they get the idea that it's really dangerous to uh, modify things on their own. That's a good lesson. All right, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Sarus Faravar. He's the senior business editor at Ars Technica and author of the book The Internet of Elsewhere, about the history of the Internet and the effects it's had on different countries around the world. He joins us to discuss his new book, Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech.
So it's interesting to remember that the United States Constitution um, does not recognize an affirmative right to privacy. If you read our founding documents from the 18th century, uh, you won't find the word privacy anywhere in there. Um, you will find the word privacy in the California state constitution. Uh, it's in Article 1, Section 1. Uh, it guarantees privacy as an affirmative right to Californians. Um, it, the word privacy also appears in a number of other state constitutions, but that's very much not the norm, right? Over time, you know, over the last 200 plus years of our history, there has built up a standard of what we think of as privacy, typically around the Fourth Amendment, right, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, privacy with respect to the government. The Fourth Amendment, of course, only protects the citizens against the actions of the government. It doesn't protect, uh, you know, individuals like you and me from the actions of Facebook or Google or any other company. When we're talking about government surveillance in the modern era, really, we have to go all the way back to the 1960s. And there was a famous Supreme Court case um, called United States versus Katz um, that involved the um, prosecution of a guy who was gambling in Los Angeles in 1965. Specifically, he would go to these phone booths and he would on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood and he would call his East Coast bookies and he would bet on college basketball games. And he did this so much that he drew the attention of the FBI and also of the Los Angeles Police Department. So they started investigating him and they figured out, you know, which phone booths he'd like to go to. And they ended up putting microphones and a recording device on top of the phone booth that he liked to use. And this is a crucial distinction that the fact that they put it on top rather than inside the phone booth or attempted to wiretap the phone booth or anything like that. The legal standard at that time really turned on a question of trespass on physical trespass into kind of an enclosed space, like a house or a phone booth or a car or an office or something like that. Law enforcement thought that they were totally within their right to go right up to the edge, right up to the physical edge of the phone booth and put this microphone on top. Charles Katz ended up challenging this case and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in the end, the Supreme Court ruled uh, in a five to three vote that that was not OK, that 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 law enforcement had overstepped their bounds by by doing that. And in that decision, there's this phrase that sort of continues to resonate with us today uh, that is a, quote, reasonable expectation of privacy. So when courts today are looking at whether or not a particular technology is OK, uh, this is a standard that they turn to. You know, is there a, quote, reasonable expectation of privacy in, you know, X or Y, Z situation? You know, having gone through the process of writing this book, of doing the research and gathering the data and, and putting, uh, you know, pen to paper, what are, the, what are the take homes for you and what do you hope people get out of reading the book? What I hope people get out of reading the book is just having a better appreciation for what kinds of technology is already in existence in America. This is not like, you know, a far off future. This is now right today in Oakland, California, the city where I live, all police officers wear body cameras, for instance. Right. And maybe in the city where you live, too, um, in lots of major cities uh, around America, this is increasingly becoming the norm. Police now have license plate readers. Police now have drones. Very soon, police will have body-worn cameras that have facial recognition capability. So imagine something even more sophisticated than a license plate reader, something that can not only capture license plates, but that can capture people's faces. And guess what? There already is a database of all of our faces, uh, the DMV and the Department of State, if you have a driver's license or a passport, 
a government agency already has a very high quality picture of your face. And so I think for a lot of people that, you know, you may not be bothered by these kinds of things. You may not, you may say, well, you know, I'm just a regular law abiding citizen. I don't really care if the police have a picture of my face or a picture of my license plate or whatever. But I think a lot of us, you know, are, are maybe a little bit troubled by that and may not realize that as of now, a lot of these technologies that might feel invasive are currently legal. So I hope that people come to realize what exists right now and also what exists, you know, in your own city. If you don't know if your local police department has license plate readers or drones or, you know, any of these other tools, I would suggest that you uh, file a public records request with your police department. Ask them. Um, and they hopefully will tell you, you know, it's easy to file a public records request. Anybody can do it. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to be a lawyer. So find out what exists in your local community. You might be really surprised. You might not know, for instance, that your city has, um, you know, however many drones or, or however many, you know, other types of surveillance tools. Um, so I want people to kind of be conscious of what exists in their own communities and ask these kinds of questions. Also, no, I, I, I want not just regular citizens to be aware, but I want, you know, local lawmakers, city council members, county supervisors, uh, police chiefs. Uh, you know, I want people who are in positions of authority to be aware of of what's going on and how it's being used. In Oakland, uh, the city council is considering a new measure that probably will pass that will impose, for the first time, uh, community control over surveillance technology in Oakland. A number of other California cities have already passed measures like this, Berkeley and Davis, California, which is near Sacramento. And a number of other communities around America are considering similar measures as well. Uh, so if this issue concerns you, I would suggest that you try to find out whether there are efforts uh, like in Oakland in your area to see if your city council or your county or your community uh, is interested or is actively pursuing such measures. Because, you know, I think what I've learned is that changing federal laws and national laws and waiting for the Supreme Court to halt a particular practice can take years or decades if it ever happens at all. But, you know, it's a lot easier to change things locally or, at, or perhaps even at your state level. I'm hopeful that that with some of the efforts by some of the more privacy minded activists and lawyers and other organizers around the country, especially here in California, that hopefully we can come up with more sensible policies that, as you say, can strike the balance between the needs of law enforcement uh, without kind of impinging on civil rights and civil liberties. That's author Cyrus Faravar. His new book, Habeas Data, is available now. We've got an extended version of my interview with Cyrus Faravar on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thecyberwire. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.